So when Jesus speaks something that has been characteristic of the response as of late is that people get angry at him. It seems the more Jesus speaks, the more angry people tend to get. Now, it's not always the case, but lately that has certainly been the case. If you remember last chapter, there was this building up, this progression of anger that was building up towards Jesus. In chapter 6, we saw, I believe it was three times, maybe, maybe two, that the people became angrier and angrier. And these were his disciples who abandoned him. Well, now we're seeing that they want to kill him. <laughs> well, that's, that's a bit of a progression, isn't it? Greater and more greater anger is being built up towards Jesus. So why do people get so angry at Jesus when he speaks? And I think one way we can answer this is by the very words that told us about who Jesus was. Jesus is the light of the world. And as light, he exposes the darkness that is inside of people. And he also exposes the, 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 the truth that is inside of people as well, doesn't he? And you see that in the way he converses with people. Every once in a while we see God doing a work in someone's life and Jesus exposes it. Right? But how much darkness do we see? And if people were generally good, we would probably see a lot of good being exposed, wouldn't we? As the light shined on it. But the reality is, the problem is that we're not good. And Jesus is continually making that clear. The, the more anger, the more response he reveals, the more anger that's revealed, the more we are seeing the reality of the hearts of men and women. The more we're seeing what is the truth inside our hearts. So what is it that is inside of people that is so bad? What is it that Jesus is exposing? How would we express that? And the answer is, it is unbelief. Unbelief is the hidden source from which every wickedness flows. It is the great problem that is rotting millions of people from the inside out like gangrene. It leads to hell and eternal, eternal judgment, right? And that's a pretty bad thing, isn't it? You know, unbelief is really failure to honor God as God. And unbelief is what keeps back the floodgates of praise from our hearts. It's unbelief that keeps us from praising God as we ought to and as we should. So one of the chief purposes of the Word of God is to do what? One of the chief purposes of the Word of God is to expose unbelief. It unmasks it. It reveals it. It exposes it for what it really is. And if you begin to notice this while you read the Bible, you're beginning to understand what's going on. You're beginning to get it right if this is what you see as you read your Bible. Now we might think of this as being something bad, but in reality, what is the most loving and healthy thing for each one of us 
is that our unbelief be exposed. Why? Because there's no other way to be saved than to have our unbelief exposed. There's no other way. There's no other way we can be saved unless the problem is exposed and identified for what it is. And one of the problems is this. this there's a huge problem <laughs> that we have. And that's the problem that we like to hide and we like to mask our unbelief. It can be so hard to identify. It can be so hard to see. We cover it and mask it in so many ways. We are experts in masking our unbelief. And it comes in so many different forms. Sometimes it is obvious and sometimes it is hidden. This is why the Word of God is absolutely essential if we're ever to have our hearts diagnosed correctly. We need the Word of God to expose and to diagnose and to reveal to us what's really going on in our hearts. Otherwise, we will never see the reality of our hearts and we will never come to Christ Jesus and we'll never live by faith. It is impossible to live by faith without the Word of God exposing and revealing who Jesus is in the unbelief of our hearts. So in this passage, Jesus is exposing unbelief in its various forms, especially the hidden unbelief. And he will call us to believe in him, although that will be, um, next week we will focus even more on that. He will call us to himself. But we need to ask this week, is this unbelief, is it rooted in my heart? Is there unbelief in my heart? Is there something that I'm looking at in the word of God that is true inside of me? today. And that is for your good and for your salvation. Now we might think, one of the things we might think when we come to this is, well this isn't as much for me, this is for unbelievers. But that's entirely not true. Alright, I want you to understand that that is entirely misunderstanding this passage if that's what you think. You see the same word that saves by faith is the same word that preserves you in the faith. The Word of God not only brings you onto the path, but also keeps you on the path. You cannot stay on the path without the Word of God. Alright? So for believers, this is for you. You need to hear this. So we first see unbelief among the Jewish religious leaders. Their plan is to kill Jesus, and this indicates that they're not believing in Him, right? That's kind of obvious, isn't it? Well, let me read verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, if you're trying to kill Jesus, what that means is that you don't believe in Jesus, right? If you're trying to kill Jesus, that means you don't believe in him. And that is just so obvious, it doesn't even need to be mentioned, but let's just all agree on that. Now, it doesn't say the religious leaders, it says the Jews here wanted to kill him. But I think when it says the Jewish people, it's talking about the religious leaders in particular, specifically. And the reason I think that is because there was a divided opinion among the common people, as we will read today, on who Jesus was. And later we will read that it was the Jewish leaders who were particularly concerned about killing Jesus. And so I'm assuming that this is generally the Jewish leaders who were focused on killing Jesus. So we also see unbelief from Jesus' own brothers. 
Except in this case, it doesn't really look like unbelief, does it? it this is a little tricky. It's even kind of shocking when we read it. This doesn't look like unbelief, at least nothing like the unbelief that wanted to kill Jesus. But it is none the, uh, unbelief nonetheless. So we see this in verses 2 through 10. But Jesus' brothers come to him, and they have some advice for him. They have some advice that will help him with his ministry, right? They think they can help Jesus have a more successful ministry if they listen to his advice. What nice and kind brothers Jesus has. Uh, we read about their advice in verses 2 through 4. Now the Jews' feast of Booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, this is their advice, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Well, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Sounds like some good advice. It sounds like some valuable help there. And it sounds reasonable at face value. I, I think what we have to remember is the context here. Um, chapter 6 happened about six months before this. And in chapter 6, if you remembered, that uh, many of the disciples left Jesus. So it's possible... It's possible that Jesus' brothers are thinking that they can help Jesus jumpstart his ministry. Man, there's been a, a little bit of failure here, maybe they're thinking. Um, we have some advice that might be able to help Jesus jumpstart his ministry after such a difficult time period in his ministry, right? And of all the times to do this, the Feast of Booths would have been the best, of the three major feasts, this one would have been the most popular of them all. And it was a time where they would all move into Jerusalem and set up these like makeshift dwelling places, these like booths that they would live in. And so you can imagine what it would have been like in Jerusalem at that time. And they would kind of, um, kind of simulate the wilderness wanderings. And remember how God had delivered them and they had wandered through the wilderness and God had taken care of them and provided for them just as he continued to provide for them. And so the point there is that it would have been mobbed. Jerusalem would have been mobbed. This would have been the perfect time for Jesus to show his stuff and his power, right? And to get a following. So this doesn't look like unbelief, does it? And perhaps that's why the narrator interjects and explains to us shockingly that the reason Jesus' brother said this was because they were unbelieving. I mean, we're told that directly. We were told that they said this because in their hearts was unbelief. And so it flowed out of them was unbelief. We read that in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now, if Jesus' brothers had said something different, right, they said something like, we do not believe you can do miracles, Jesus. <laughs> right? We would have said, that's unbelief, clearly. Or we are against you. You've got big problems. We want to kill you or something like that. <laughs> we don't want to associate with your ministry. They would say, well, that's unbelief. But that's not what's going on here, is it? It sounds more like a really good evangelistic strategy. 
a way to get Jesus' name out there. Show yourself to the world. They believe Jesus can do miracles. They have no doubt that Jesus can do great things. They've seen it. They know it. And so we need this interjection, don't we? If we're to see that this is unbelief. So what makes his brother's advice that of unbelief? What makes it so unbelieving in their response? In verses 6 through 7, Jesus unmasks their unbelief. He exposes it and reveals it for what it is by contrasting the way he operates with the way they operate. So as we're going to look at how Jesus um, regulates his time and his calendar, we're going to see what a believing heart, um, what motivates them to act the way they do. And as they live and act and what, how they regulate their calendars, we're going to see how unbelief regulates their actions. So Jesus says, my time has not yet come. What does that mean? What does it mean when he says, my time has not yet come? And what Jesus is saying is that the basis for how he sets his agenda is always for his father's purposes. In other words, it's always for his father's glory. That's how he sets his agenda and his purposes. If Jesus had a calendar and a schedule, every day would be marked for God's glory. (laughs) For God's glory. (laughs) That's what I'm doing today. Everything I do is for God's glory. If you were asked, what time are you doing this? He would say, whatever glorifies the Father the most. (laughs) That's the time I'm doing that. And that's the way I'm doing that. What moved him was the pursuit of God's glory. That was his divine driving purpose for his life. And by the way, I'm not going to do that right now, but if you went throughout these verses, verses 1 through 24, you will see Jesus is constantly directing the attention to the Father's glory. He is deflecting the glory to his Father over and over and over again. It's just the pattern he does. This is what faith looks like. And Jesus, and understand this, Jesus is the supreme model of perfect humanity. Jesus is modeling for us perfect, righteous, God-honoring humanity. So his time had not yet come. His calendar did not have on it go to the feast, for he acted according to his father's timing. And he would not be glorified by going at this time. Jesus also says, in contrast to his timing, but your time is always here. You see, in contrast to how Jesus set his agenda, Jesus' brothers set their agenda by what exalted them, by what brought them praise, by what pleased them supremely, by what glorified them. That's what set their agenda. Man's approval and man's applause. If they had a calendar, every day would be marked, whatever brings me the most praise and whatever time I can get it, (laughs) right? Whatever works the best for me. On their calendar, now would be the best time to make a name for themselves. Why not? (laughs) Whatever time works best. And so it motivated them, what moved them was a deep-rooted hunger for personal glory and praise. That was their driving force. Now this is not to say that if Jesus followed their agenda, he would not have looked successful. All you have to do is look at the Tower of Babel. 
right? The Tower of Babel looked incredibly successful, didn't it? When you look at it from man's perspective, it looked like things were going really, really well for a while there. So let us not confuse the appearance of success with living by faith. It's not the same thing, all right? It can be very deceptive if we think that's the way it works. So this is what unbelief looks like. This is naturally what drives people. This is behind their motivations. This is what gets them to do what they do. And so Jesus says, your time is always here. Their calendar had on it, time to magnify my name (laughs) and to please myself. Go up to the feast was written all over it. It is always time to make a name for themselves. Therefore, Jesus could say that the world cannot hate you. That's a strange connection, isn't it, for Jesus to say. But what he's saying is the world cannot hate you because you are in sync with the world. You are living according to the purposes of the world. They will love you, at least in in that sense of loving you. (laughs) Because you are aligned with the world. You love what they love. You are in the same same compartment. (laughs) That's not exactly the word I was looking for, but... You know what I mean. You're gonna, they're going to love you if you work according to the world's agenda and if you follow their narrative, right? But Jesus says in contrast that the world hates me. And the question is why? And Jesus tells us why. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus has a different agenda than the world has. He is not suppressing the truth, is he? Jesus is not trying to hold down the glory of God. Jesus is magnifying the glory of God. And when he does that, it's going to expose the wickedness of the hearts of those around him. He doesn't even have to say anything. And he's going to make people angry. But when he says something, he's going to make people much, much more angry. His life is a living testimony that's going to judge the world. It exposes the unbelief. It's an indictment against the world is his very life in his words because he is the light of the world and his life and his words expose the darkness that is around him. What we're seeing in practice is what Jesus has already stated in chapter 5. Listen to John chapter 5 verse 43. I'll just say one verse here. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Right? He says, I have come in my Father's name for the Father's glory. I have come. And guess what? You're not receiving me. If another comes in his own name, meaning seeking the same purposes that you're seeking, what will happen? It says, you will receive him. You reject me because I am seeking the Father's glory. In other words, you are driven by unbelieving purposes. You are are riddled by unbelief. (laughs) That is who you are. In verses 8 through 9, we see Jesus not only claims that he acts according to his Father's will and his timing and not theirs, but he actually does so. We read, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. I love this. Jesus said, I'm not going up. (laughs) And then later on, he goes up. Is Jesus lying? (laughs) 
Absolutely not. He's not lying at all. Notice he says, it was not my time to go up. When it was his time to go up, when God would be most glorified, and in the way God would be most glorified, then he does go up. It was just not his time to go up at that moment. That's what he's saying. He doesn't go up flamboyantly. He doesn't go up in such a way to make a name for himself the way they wanted him to go. His purpose was to die by crucifixion, not to gain the applause and the praise of man. He came to die and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what moved Jesus. Glory was coming, <laughs> and glory was in the cross, but not the glory that man was seeking. So what I want us to see is both the desire to kill Jesus and the desire to go up, for Jesus to go up and make a name for himself were driven by the same underlining unbelief. Therefore, unbelief does not always look the same way. We also see unbelief in the Jewish people's conflicting ideas about who Jesus is. They're divided. Some say he is a deceiver. Well, that's clearly unbelief, isn't it? And others, he's a good person. Surprisingly, that is also unbelief as well. Both responses in this case are unbelieving responses. All right? So some say in verse 11 to 13 that he's leading people astray. Again, this is unbelief. We know it. We don't need to comment on it. We get it. Unbelief. Others said he's a good man. Now, this one is a little tricky, isn't it? There's nothing wrong or unbelieving in itself with calling Jesus a good man. Jesus is not just a good man. He is the best man ever. <laughs> he's the greatest man ever. The problem is that those who thought Jesus was a good man are among those who were afraid to speak openly about him. Now this is unbelief. Obviously, they did not believe that Jesus was really all that good of a man. <laughs> did they? Obviously, they thought the approval of man was better than Jesus' name was good. In their view, what they could lose outweighed the goodness of Jesus' name. They had a lot to lose if they spoke up about Jesus, so they were quiet about it. Jesus' name wasn't really as good as they were claiming it was. Otherwise, they would not have been ashamed to speak openly about him. Jesus said this, He was ashamed of me and my words. He will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory. Luke 9, verse 26. See, faith sees Jesus' name as better than people's approval. Because faith sees Jesus for who he is, not perfectly, but it is seeing Jesus as not just good, but better than all other things, even the approval of those around us. Now, I'm not saying that believers won't struggle with this, all right? I struggle immensely with this, right? And there might have been some of those people there who were believers, right? True believers, that doesn't mean it's not unbelief to act this way, right? Even believers struggle with unbelief. It sometimes affects my courage in giving the gospel. Sometimes I'm afraid to do so. We all struggle with this. We all struggle with wanting people's approval. 
But with faith, there is a struggle because at the core of our being, we know that Jesus is good. Faith sees Jesus as good, not just good, but better than everything else. And you will desire to make him known. There will be a battle in your heart. You will want to declare his goodness because your life will be a growing understanding of his goodness. And how can anyone hold that back? As we begin to see the goodness of God more and more every day, and as our faith grows, we say, I want to make him known. That's what faith does. Faith does not hold back the floodgates of praise that is owed to Jesus. It is unbelief that holds it back, right? If that is the case, then this is unbelief. And this is likely where most of us would struggle with, right? We tend to whisper so that the authorities don't hear us. Jesus is a good man. I think he's a good man. But we're afraid to speak of him in public openly because we'll lose our face and our approval. Our friends, our family, our loved ones might not like us. We also see unbelief from the response of those who are listening to Jesus. Jesus goes to the temple and teaches. And the people are amazed at Jesus' teaching, but their amazement does not equal faith. They're amazed at Jesus' teaching in an unbelieving way, indicating, and get this, that it's possible to be amazed at Jesus and yet unbelieving. In verses 14 through 18. So sometime during the feast, Jesus goes into the temple in order to teach, and the effect of his teaching is that the people are amazed. Verses 14 through 15. And we're given some clues there as to what amazed them about Jesus' teaching. They seem to be amazed at his ability to teach, even though he had no one who taught him. (laughs) Right? He had never studied. Maybe he could articulate things really well. And for someone who hadn't studied under their teachers, they were impressed. This man is a learned man. How did he get this way? How could someone have learned so much without having studied? And this again is tricky, isn't it? For us, we might first imagine that such amazement is absolutely automatically faith. And it could have been. But it is clear from Jesus' response that their amazement was not faith. How do we know that? You see, Jesus tells them how they can know that he is from God, how they can believe in him in verses 17 through 18. So clearly he's addressing the problem here. He's addressing a problem that they are not believing in him. And so in verses 17 through 18, he's going to tell them, this is how you know that I'm true. This is how you believe in me. This is how you know whether I am truly from God. So the implication from verses 17 through 18 is that their amazement at him in verses 14 through 15 was not faith at all. Or else Jesus would not have responded that way. So Jesus responds to their amazement by directing them to what really matters. That his teaching is truly from the Father. He says in verse 16, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. You know, he is making a profound statement about the origin of his words, where his words come from. This is profound, (laughs) what he's saying. He's saying, I am in alignment with the Father's words. My words are his words. That's incredible. My thoughts are his thoughts. They're in unison. 
And at the same time, he is deflecting praise in their amazement to the Father. Notice that. But how do we know and believe that Jesus' teaching is actually from God? I mean, isn't that important for us? I want to know. Jesus is telling them, I want to know myself. How do I know that Jesus' teaching is from God? Because that is really the issue. And Jesus is saying, you're, you're focused on peripheral things like how learned I am. And you're missing what really matters, which is, am I from God? And how do you know if I am true? How do you know if what I'm speaking is true? And by the way, when you're listening to someone, that is all that matters. Not how learned they are. Praise God. Praise God. <laughs> that matters is not how learned I am or how well I can put together a sentence, but whether what I'm saying is true, right? And so he says, this is how you know that what I'm saying is true. In verse, seven, uh, verse 17. If, anyone, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. All right? What a strange way Jesus talks. So contradictory to everything we would ever imagine him saying. Jesus is saying something just incredible here. If you want to be able to know whether Jesus' teaching is from God, you must first have your desires aligned with God's will. What? You can't recognize Jesus speaking for God unless your heart is aligned with God's will. In other words, as other people have mentioned that I studied, the basis for right knowing is right willing. The basis for right knowing, for right knowing, for right believing is right willing. Right willing is the foundation for right knowing. Isn't that just mind-blowing? If this is the case, then his words will resonate as true in your heart. If your heart is rightly aligned with the words, then when you hear them, your heart will begin to sing. It might be a, a, a really quiet song at first, <laughs> but, but it will sing because it will say, it is true. Your words are true. You will sing the same tune as the word of God. It will resonate within your soul. Now, there might be some things that are hard to take, but you will hear the Father's voice in it. You will want to submit to it, even if it's hard to hear, just like a son does to his father. Now, I'm sure my sons don't always like what they hear from me, right? But if their hearts are right, then they will want to understand what I have to say. You know, how much greater is that for the father? The problem is our wills are not naturally aligned with his. His will is foreign to us. We don't love it. Our desires are not aligned with Jesus' desires. We revolt against it. We hate it, just like the people getting angry at Jesus, right? This is why the world cannot receive and believe Jesus' teaching as being true and right in their natural condition. The world cannot as assess Jesus' teaching properly. They hate it and do not love it. The world will either try to reinvent Jesus to look differently or push him away and go their own direction. And this is exactly what Jesus said in John 5, verse 44. We suppress the truth. That's how we push Jesus away. Remember that. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? They're driven by different purposes. They're seeking the glory of man. They cannot believe if that's the case in your life. It's impossible for you to believe. That's what Jesus said. How then can you possibly desire God's will so that you can know if he's true and believe in him? Well, something profound has to happen to your will 
if you're ever to love God's glory more than your own glory, if you're ever to love his praise more than your own name, you need a change of your will. You need a miracle of God that goes on in your heart. You have, a, you have to have a heart that's radically reshaped to love God's truth if you're ever to confirm that he is true. And we can only confirm and love his truth when our wills and desires are aligned with him, beginning to be aligned with him. A new heart. If anyone is in Christ, is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That's what that's talking about. This is what we call the new birth that we've already talked much about. And it's very important that we understand it in light of what Jesus is saying. We read about this in John 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see with his eyes, see the kingdom of God. He cannot perceive the kingdom of God unless one is born again. He cannot hear the message of Jesus unless one is born again. So the, the, the Spirit of God has to work a miracle in someone's heart if they're to hear the gospel. So the new birth or regeneration has to precede your affirmation that God is true. And you will affirm that God is true and put your faith in him. So Jesus is saying, you are concerned with the wrong peripheral issues? Who cares how much learning I have? Why are you even thinking about that? You're missing the whole point. What matters is whether it is from above. Does my speaking consist with the truth? Is it from God? Is it in line with the truth of God? Jesus says that the only way you can know and believe is if your heart is changed to love God's glory. Otherwise, you will not see life in his words. You will hate it and will not love it. Or you will change it to affirm your own desires. This means, and this is pretty neat, I think, you don't have to be extra smart to be a Christian. Isn't that great? It's not about your smarts. It's about a heart that's aligned with the truth. Right. In, in, in fact, some of the greatest smarts are some of the greatest hindrances for people because it becomes pride and arrogance and will not submit to God's word. In verse 18, Jesus explains further how you can discern the truthfulness of Jesus' claims or anyone's claims to be speaking in behalf of God. Are they speaking man's self-glorying agenda? That's the question. Or God's glorifying agenda, which is the word of God, right? From beginning to end, it's God glorifying. It always honors and speaks much of him. It glorifies God and doesn't magnify man at all. So verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, right? The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. That's unbelief, right? But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. How do you know if it's true if they're seeking the glory of God, if they're speaking of the glory of God, if they're magnifying his name rather than man's? The great revealing question that un unmasks or reveals truth from error is this. Whose glory are you seeking? Are you seeking the glory of God or man's glory, your own glory? God's approval or man's praise? If someone's message in life is that of seeking God's glory, that should cause an antenna to come up indicating that this person is true and not false. A mark of truthfulness is God-exalting versus self-exalting. Which basically means you're accurately expositing God's word. That's simply what it means. <laughs> if you're accurately expositing God's word, then you're going to exalt God. That's what it means. 
So Jesus is saying here, I am not just a model of this, but the best. I am the perfect model of this. In fact, his response to people's amazement was, an, was his own example. These are not my words, these are my Father's words. Remember, he just said that. He was showing us by example exactly what he is telling us, how to identify someone who's from God. Just as he deflected the glory to God, so he's showing us how to do this. He is constantly directing people to the Father's glory. And this is why Jesus can be trusted. He is not a religious deceiver, nor does he ever have mixed motives. Now I want to say one thing that is really, was really helpful for me, and, and, and this helped me out. I was listening to John Piper uh, ad- address a question here. Well, why is it that sometimes Jesus does glorify himself, right? Sometimes he says things like, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before time began. And then he says, before Abraham was, I am. So he does call attention to his glory every once in a while. But we also see that he often says things like, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Right? Over and over again, he calls and de- deflects the attention and the glory to the Father. Well, I think the answer is because Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is the God-man. He is unlike anybody else. There's no one else like him. There's a tension with Jesus, with him being both God and fully man. This is why he's able to do both, say both of those things at different times. He is showing us what it means to be God, and he's showing us what it means to be the perfect man. He is giving us an example of what that looks like. So Jesus says the same is true the other way around. If someone is seeking his own glory, that person is not true, but is false. This is why you need to get to know your leaders. This is why you need to get to know your pastors. Are they humble people? Are they seeking the glory of God or their own praise, financial gain, approval of those around them? If this applies supremely to Jesus, then how much more, not more, how much should it apply to us as well? You can just imagine the danger of following someone who is out for their own glory. They're going to skip things in the word of God that are less popular, right? They'll be afraid of people or they'll want to fleece the flock, right? Their message will be garbled, but the true sheep will know the difference and be able to discern it. So we're going to have to skip the last point here and we'll get to it next week. (laughs) So what I want us to see is this. Unbelief takes many different forms, doesn't it? It can look very different at different times. Unbelief can look like wanting to kill Jesus or thinking he is deceiving everyone. Unbelief can look like the brothers of Jesus, <laughs> right? Who told him he should go out there and show his stuff to the world. Unbelief can look like amazement at someone's ability to speak even God's words. And what we skip today is that unbelief can even look very religious, can't it? Unbelief can look very religious. It can boast in keeping the law. 
but for the wrong purposes. Either way, it is the same thing. It is self-destructive and it is unbelief. And it can be so discomforting and terrifying when we find out that we are not who we think we were. But this exposure is for our good, isn't it? To cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus. To finally see, to be exposed for who we truly are inside of our hearts. That we are not who we thought we were. You see, the best thing for us is to have that whatever is stopping the praise of God from our hearts flowing out to be removed. There's nothing better and healthier for our lives than to have whatever is stopping the floodgates of God's praise removed from us. That is what it means to live a healthy life for the glory of God. So Jesus brings out the worst in people, which is every single person (laughs) has the worst in them, in order to bring them to see their need for faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior. This is the difference between life and death, heaven and hell. Now the standard of whether or not we have saving faith is how we view Christ, isn't it? Notice we see that right here in this passage. Faith loves Christ, his work, his word, and his way, and it's growing to love him more. Now it doesn't always feel that way, (laughs) but it believes that it's true, sometimes pressing on despite, feel, fe- uh, despite our feelings is the greatest evidence of faith, isn't it? Sometimes we don't feel that way. We press on anyway. We keep going. And we read God's word. To love Christ is to love God. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I think R.C. Sproul was right on. He said that about whether you, how you do you know you're saved is the first question to ask is, do I love Jesus? Do I delight in him? But that is not really satisfactory in itself. The next question to ask is, do I love the Jesus of the Bible or one of my own imagination? Do do you see the difference there? How many people say, oh, I love Jesus, but they don't know the God, the Jesus of the Bible. So they don't love Jesus at all. There is no heart for Jesus. They're not saved. You have to know the Jesus of the Bible. The one who said these incredibly hard things and exposes our unbelief so that we might believe and trust in Jesus and his work on the cross, his finished work, as the only basis for which we can be saved and have eternal life. So do you believe in the Jesus? Do you love? Do you delight? Are you seeking the Jesus of the Bible or the Jesus of your own imaginations? So finally, how do you increase your desire for God's glory? If you're like me, you will want to grow in your God-exalting faith because you will have a lot of growth to do. (laughs) If so, then pray that God would open your eyes to see the truth of who he is and put the word of God before your eyes. Pray and read and study God's word. I struggle daily with selfishness and wanting to please people and to be applauded. You probably don't, but I do. I want everyone to think my way. And sometimes I get upset when they don't. If you're like me, then you need to pray. I want a heart that pursues your glory. I want to desire your glory. I want to see it for what it is. I want to find pleasure in your glory. And I want to boast of your glory. I want that to be my desire. Lord, help me to see your goodness. Increase my taste for your glory. And and God loves to answer prayers like that. Let's pray. 
Dear Father, we want to see your glory today. Like Moses, we pray, Lord, show me your glory. We want to see it. Not just in statements, not even in really nice sentence structures or amazing oratory skills, but we want to see the glory of the truth in our hearts. We want to respond by praise and worship. We want to confess that you are good, not just with our mouths, but with our hearts. And Lord, you are infinitely good and infinitely great. Lord, help us to see your glory. And Lord, I pray that this week that we would not be able to withhold your praises. I pray that you would root out those things that are keeping your praise from flowing out of our mouths. I pray that whatever sin, whatever unbelief is, is, is in our hearts, that you would root it out of us, that we would confess it and repent and turn to you and live daily in that repentance, daily confessing and daily repenting for your glory and for our good. Lord, I pray that you do that in us. And if there's anyone in here who is not saved, who is outside of your favor, who stands under the judgment seat of Christ right now, I pray that you would save them. I pray that you give them a heart that beats for your truth and that they would say, these words are true. These words are from God. Jesus is from God. I pray that you do that amazing work right now and that we would, with one voice, proclaim your name with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.